Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my privilege to have as my guest, Gina Thomas. Gina is a writer, a faith wrestler, a wife, and a mom. She's been married to Andrew for 12 years, and they have uh, two elementary age children. She presently works as a program coordinator for World Relief. She's been, along with her husband, a missionary in Mexico, and she's been featured in her writing with in NPR's Morning Edition, USA Today, Christianity Today. She's written several books, including one on missions work called A Smoldering Wick, Igniting Missions Work with Sustainable Practices that applies international development practices to short-term missions. And back in 2019, she published her second book, Separated by the Border, A Birth Mother, Mother, A Foster Mother, and a Migrant Child's 3,000-Mile Journey. And in that story, she unpacks how she helped her Honduran foster daughter reunite with her family after being separated at the U.S. border. And then she's published Alyssa and the Coronavirus, which was a children's book that she self-published back in April 2020. And she's working right now on a book about God's abundance. We have a really helpful and rich conversation about how to think about missions work, especially short-term missions practices, about justice work, and about how to better serve and to think about issues of immigration um, within our own country and how local churches can be part of the solution and to serve persons that have come into um, our communities um, from another country. Really enjoy this conversation, and without uh, further ado, let's jump into the interview. Hi, Gina. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Can you share some key moments in your spiritual journey thus far that's kind of led you to the present and the career that you've had as a missionary, an author, and as an advocate for justice? Yeah, so I um, I grew up as a as a Christian evangelical Christian. Uh, never really know a day of my life without Christ, um, which which I consider quite lucky. Um, and and really, it's been um, you know it's been quite the journey um, from you know being in Bible club in high school to um, Campus Crusade in college um, to just kind of always I, I think moving around as much as I did when I was younger. Um, and having very large glasses. Um, I think I've always been, um, uh, had the perspective of, you know, who, who are the people that feel left out? Um, who are the people that aren't being included right now? Um, and just really have, have kind of honed uh, a lot of um, my spiritual life around that, whether, I've, whether it was on purpose or just kind of happened. Um, and so, so the, the call for justice, the feeling of, of, of really trying to understand what justice is and what it means um, has really been, has really stemmed from feeling left out, to be honest, um, and, and knowing that other people feel left out too, and really trying to understand who God is and what um, God means to people who don't feel like they fit in. So, yeah. 
Well, let's see. You know, I, I remember back in the eighties, my, I've worn glasses since I was 13 and, and I guess you probably had the same experience. Yep. The, the glasses get thinner and lighter right. every year you live. Yes. And I, and I had these monsters I used to slide down my nose all the time because I'm so nearsighted yep. and everything. So I, I, I can resonate yep. with that. That's that. So that's actually kind of cool. Can you, could you just give your basic definition of when you say justice? Cause a lot of people use that word, you're yeah. using it in a Christian from a Christian yeah. perspective. So what do you have like a hip pocket definition of what um, justice is? Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of, of my own understanding of justice came from, from really trying to study the Hebrew words, um, Mishpat and Zedekah, and really trying to understand mm. um, what does that mean for, for me? What does that mean for us? So Mishpat um, being, you know, giving what is due to someone else, and then Zedekah, a life of right relationship, and um, trying to really understand that, uh, you can't really give someone what is due to them if you don't have a relationship or a right relationship with them. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't, you know, give people what's due to them who are strangers. But what it does mean is that you have to have the right perspective of who that stranger is and and their identity and their Mago day that is innate in them um, to really to really be able to to do that, to do justice um, and to understand what justice is for a, a specific situation. Um, so yeah, that's what I mean when I say justice. No, thank you. I think it's really that's really clear. And you know, as an Old Testament person, I love that you gave us a little Hebrew <laughs> there too. So that's, you, you went right to the source for that. So that that was awesome. So you started you and you and your husband. You mentioned right after you got were married, you went and served in in Mexico uh, as as missionaries. What was that experience like? And 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 specifically, um, what was it like? being, and we'll come back to like what we can learn about short-term missions in a minute, but mm -hmm. like, what was it like being a missionary as a young couple in your twenties and then moving back to the United States? And yeah, how did that change your experience of, of like what justice is maybe? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, you know, living there in our twenties and actually our son, um, our oldest was, was born there too. So it was, it was quite an experience for us. Um, we, we were seven months married. <laughs> I like to tell people I don't, <laughs> I don't recommend doing that. Um, <laughs> and the reason is because there was just, I mean, as you can imagine, you know, moving to a different culture, a different language, um, there's just a lot of tension that that is there and that you hold um, in trying to decipher through things like culture shock and what is what does it really mean to be a Christ follower that transcends cultures because so much of whether we see it when it's happening or not, but so much of our faith um, is determined by where we live and what language we speak and, and who we're around all the time. And so um, a lot of that was, you know, just a reawakening. We specifically in Mexico, we, we serve two different, very distinct populations. So we um, had a coffee shop and that ministered to the local community. Um, and it also ministered to um, international rock climbers who came uh, to the area to rock climb. And so we had this really interesting, um, you know, juxtaposition of, of what faith looks like to different people from different cultures. We had people from all over the world come into the coffee shop. Um, and we're, we were able to have just some awesome conversations. You know, sometimes the conversations were nothing and sometimes they, they went really deep. Um, and then also, you know, learning to be a part of a Mexican church and, you know, do things that are uh, sensitive to the Mexican culture and not do things that maybe would normally would do in the States that are perceived as totally fine, um, in Christian culture that maybe aren't, uh, in Mexico. And so, um, you know, it was a lot of, uh, of just really digging into like, 
who are we? Like what it really, what is our identity and, and who is our identity in Christ and how, um, how can that, you know, follow us everywhere that we go, um, regardless of the culture around us. So when we moved back to the States, um, as most people experienced, we had the, the lovely effect of reverse culture shock and, um, and that, I think still, I think it still happens, you know, I think it's, I think it's an ongoing thing. Um, but it really did kind of, kind of reframe our own perspective of faith and tried to, you know, in a, in a lot of ways showed us that what we thought, um, was Christian, maybe was actually just Christian culture, American Christian culture. And maybe I could even say white American Christian culture. Um, and then I think we also learned to hold our hands open a lot more, um, whether that was with our faith and our theological ideas um, or just, you know, our general like living and daily life. Um, when someone has a completely different perspective of what you should do, for example, with my son when he was born. He needed to be wearing socks when it was hundred degrees outside. That's the Mexican culture. Like you huh. don't not have socks on your child. Um, so, you know, different things like that, where you just realize that, you know, they might seem benign, but, uh, at the, at the heart of it is, um, just a recognition that maybe someone else's perspective is valid, you know, whether it's the, you know, whether it's about socks or whether it's about God, um, to like really think through what is this person saying? Why are they saying it? Why have they come to this conclusion? Um, and so I think that really challenged us um, when we moved back to the States. I, I would also say that um, having been there for four and a half years under the leadership of our Mexican pastor, who we love dearly, um, really helped us to see a very different perspective of um, what pastoring can look like from someone who's not white. Um, and I think that eventually that led us to, to finding a church that was not a white male pastor. Um, and so, you know, trying to see things from different perspectives and realize that most of the books we read on theology are white males, you know, different things like this, that I think a lot of people are going through a lot of that deconstruction now. I think for us, it was, it was during that time and it was because of our experience in Mexico that really kind of layered the filters of culture in ways that we hadn't seen before. And just to follow up on that, I was going to ask you about what you learned about spirituality, but I think you just you kind of hit a couple of those things. So how do you actually help again, different, depending on where you live? Like I live in Orlando. So when I moved down here, grew up in Ohio, uh, and obviously had experiences this in our, in our school, my, my school that I went to in elementary school is integrated when I was very young. And so, you know, I was, I was always used to uh, both, you know, being around, various different types of white people from different parts of Europe. That was very much immigrant culture up in Northeast Ohio when I was growing up and then around African-Americans. So I knew some of the experiences, but it wasn't until I um, literally moved to Florida that I got, got to meet really the biggest non, um, well, so you got to even use the right language because it's um, non-English speaking group in the United States, which is would be persons from that speak Spanish from all various countries of uh, from this um, uh, from the countries that are around the United States and wasn't even aware of 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 
these wonderful cultures. Like I'm married now to a woman from Puerto Rico. When I was growing up, I didn't even know that was part of the United States, which is kind of an, I, that was an embarrassing confession I made to my wife when early on, <laughs> which made her laugh and stuff. But, you know, so, so, but being in Orlando, it's been natural just to make friends from all over the world. And I know that that's massively enhanced uh, my ability to teach, to be a, a better Christian or just a better human mm-hmm. being. But I always wonder what would have happened to me um, if I would have stayed in, you know, the, the area where I grew up, say Northeast Ohio, and, you know, and you lived in different parts of the country where you have more homogeneity, um, that's the wrong, mm-hmm. I think it's the right word, or, or just, you don't really get them. Maybe you only know one type of culture that's slightly different than yours. So what, what would you say to somebody that has never experienced the, the breadth of humanity and what might they be missing? And how do you help people to say, you know, maybe I need to read some different authors. Do you have any advice on that? Yeah, it can it can certainly be tricky, especially these days, right? Um, yeah, yeah. In, <laughs> in all the different ways that things are politicized, um, I think, you know, when we when we think about the Bible and and who Jesus was and how he he had represented in his you know small group with him so many different um, political views, different uh, cultural backgrounds, different um, socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, I think that that he exemplifies to us what it means to have a um, diverse group of people around us. Um, and sometimes, you know, that might be in age, that might be in um, theological beliefs, that might be, you know, in different ways that diversity can happen. Um, I do think that it's really helpful now as, as easy as it is to get our hands on books or um, audiobooks, my personal favorite, um, or podcasts, or even through social media to really hear um, what others are saying that maybe we, we wouldn't normally listen to or aren't typically part of our, you know, our homogenous circles that, that typically we, we flock to. So um, there's all kinds of resources for people to reach out to. And I think that's really what then opens the door for us to say, hey, like, let me take a look at my own life and, you know, see, see the the diversity or lack of diversity that I have in my friendships, in my relationships, in, you know, who I read and who I'm listening to, um, and really trying to to understand again with that cultural piece that um, what is it about God? Like, what is, what is the Bible actually saying that transcends culture? Um, I think those things are seen much more when we are around diverse people um, where, you know, it's not, maybe it's not normal for this family to go to church every Sunday. Maybe they go to church on Wednesdays and, and, and what we think and automatically associate in our heads with what it means to be a Christian then gets questioned and those questions turn into a deeper faith. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not sure that I answered your question exactly. It certainly depends on who you're talking to, but hopefully, you know, I, I think as Christians, we can really, um, we can look throughout all of the Bible and see the different, different cultures that interact with each other. And then that stems into a much deeper faith of who Christ is. Yeah. And, and just, I mean, I think that's a great answer. And what when could you you know obviously mentioned mentioned politics and obviously we can get all go down that that, that whole road but uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, but you know but at some at some level folks tend to be afraid of people that are different from them and whether that has evolutionary roots or it's just mm-hmm. flat out sin or combinations of all those things that's often a bridge that you have to cross because we always think well you know, you've, you've experienced people going on short-term mission trips and we'll, we'll say more about that, but it's always like, oh, I'm going to go help the other. So how do you actually, or is it even possible to help a person who's again, mostly used to people that are just like themselves, 
even it can even be economics. A lot of people, even if they have a diverse friendships, they they still have the same economic class, mm-hmm. basically. So mm-hmm. how do you actually help persons to literally break down boundaries and to embrace another, not so much that the other has to become like us, but that I'm willing to literally, you know, take the walls down and, you know, and go and have dinner, not, mm-hmm. you know, not at my table, but go and share t- somebody else's table where I'm the person that's different. I mean, what, do you have any tips on that? Have you found ways that help folks to get a little bit more comfort with um, breaking down the us and them kind of dynamic? Yeah, I think probably the biggest first step is listening and like learning how to actively listen to other people. Um, You know, again, we're in we're in an age where um, any kind of debate is just like (laughs) we're just all throwing things at each other. You know, nobody's actually sitting and listening. And so if someone has an issue with you or with your viewpoint and you actually sit down and listen and try to understand the motivation behind that issue. it's often that we, we come to recognize, well, I actually have that same need or that same human desire or whatever it is. Um, and I can relate on that level. Um, I, I do think theologically it helps us when we constantly remind ourselves that we're all made in the image of God, um, that it really just brings everything back to, am I treating my fellow human being as I want to be treated? Right. Um, am I honoring the Imago Dei in this person, um, by, you know, listening or acting the way that I'm acting around them. Um, and I think that, uh, I I do think it takes time. Um, I do, I loved your example of like going to someone else's house and eating the food that they create for you. Um, because it is easy, uh, you know, to, to, bring your own food, whether that's actual real food, or we're talking theoretically here, like to bring your own food to that group and then be like, I'm friends with this person um, when that's not actually the case. And so um, I do think it, it takes a lot of humility, but um, man, we have the best example of humility there ever was as Christians. And so um, I don't know that we have much of an excuse to not you know, to not really do some of that deep, difficult work that, um, in all reality, I feel like, uh, our society and however you want to phrase that, um, I do think that America has its own empirical ways, like it's empire ways of doing mm-hmm. things. And so, um, as empire, we are, we are taught like, you know, you alone matter, you, your own opinions matter only to whatever degree that might be. Um, and you don't need other people. And so to learn how to like be interdependent with others is, is really something that the church kind of offers to show us. Um, some do it a lot better than others, but, but that's really what, what this is about is that, that mutuality where I need you and you need me and together we, you know, we, we can build the kingdom better. Um, but if I only ever need myself or I'm only ever the one who feeds other people, uh, then eventually I'm lost. And, and I, I see that unfortunately all too often these days. And I want to talk, ask you a couple of questions about immigration. Um, and obviously you have a really compelling story in, in, uh, in the, in your book, um, uh, separated by the border, a birth mother, a foster mother, a migrant child's 3000 mile journey where you, um, really write up just a powerful, uh, true story that you experienced firsthand, but you know, so from your own 
experience with a foster child and then just living in Mexico, now living in the United States and just kind of seeing the immigration conversation or lack thereof, I guess, would be the, real, the immigration argument that we tend to have as, as Americans. What, what would you say are some common assumptions that Christians, and we'll just talk about Christians now, have about immigration, immigrants, refugees that are potentially misguided? Yeah, I think um, one of the biggest misconceptions is that um, it's an it's an easy choice to come to the states. That it's uh, you know land of the free, home of the brave. Who doesn't want to come here? Kind of thing. Um, and and I, and I think that assumption can get us in a lot of trouble because um, both in the situation that I talk about in my book, um, and also in a lot of different situations that I know personally from from immigrant friends of mine. Um, the choice to come to the States is, is usually one um, that is taken very seriously. It's not, uh, it's not the best option, um, but it is, is an option. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, a lot of the push factors that are happening in Central America, um, a lot of people are making that decision based on life. They are seeking life. Um, and I think that if, you know, those of us who are Christians and call ourselves pro-life, um, we have to recognize that this is a pro-life issue um, and uh, rather than seeing it as a scarcity through our scarcity mindset, um, because, uh, you know, in regards to, to the situation that happened with my foster daughter and her biological mother, um, it, it really was an issue of trying to save a family member's life to come here. Um, and, and that really, that if, if that, um, could not, could no longer be, you know, misinformation that we have, if we could all agree on that, I think that we would get a lot further, uh, as Christians working towards immigration reform than we currently are. So what would be some strategies? And again, you're an expert on, I mean, you're going to, you're, you know, working on international development and you're going to be, you're working, can I say who you're going to work for? Is that? Uh, I think it's okay. Yeah. 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 So you work for you know a group called World Relief. So you, you have some real expertise in in this particular area. What 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 would what are some strategies that local churches can develop that would actually help immigrants and refugees that are hopefully in, probably in proximity to the people that are listening to the podcast, that folks that have come to the United States. So what, what are some strategies that you see work that are that truly serve? glorify Jesus and help, um, probably help the churches to, to grow more spiritually, but most profoundly help the folks that are actually coming into our country. Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to some of what we were already saying, right? So, um, so building relationships with immigrant communities, uh, in most, most areas, there's immigrant, immigrant churches that are meeting. Um, so for church leaders and pastors to, to actually, branch out and reach out to those communities and say, hey, what are you doing? How can we help? How can we support you? What issues are you facing specifically to your region? And how can we kind of get behind it and, and help with that? Um, and I, I think, um, you know, I, as a writer, I always go back to language. I think uh, one of the most profound things that we can, we can begin to do, um, you know, generally across the board is to watch our language that we use with immigrants. Um, I talk about this quite a bit in the book, but there are certain things that uh, are often said, whether 
um, by other Christians, by, you know, legal counsel, by organizations, by politicians um, that do not honor the Imago Dei in immigrants. And, um, and I think that, again, if we are pro-life and we are pro that Imago Dei, that, that we do all we can to honor that. So watching the language that we use, not using dehumanizing language uh, towards immigrants. And then again, that active listening of, you know, if you do know someone, um, actively listen to their story and maybe they don't want to tell it and that's okay if they don't but if they do um to really pay attention to to what it is what motivates them to come to the states and and what issues are they currently facing because of it you know there's a lot of xenophobia happening right now and um and any ways that we can help um you know decrease that and the effects that it has which is often you know long-term effects that it can have on people and their mental health uh, in addition to physical health issues i think is really important to to be aware of there's plenty of organizations that are doing you know a lot of really great immigrant and refugee work and uh, i have a lot of resources on my website for that um, but i think specifically um, preaching from the pulpit about immigration is it's surprising how few people do that um, how few churches actually do that. And then, and then like in sharing with congregations and with, you know, Bible study groups or small groups, like what, what does the Bible actually say about immigration? Um, because it says a lot and, uh, and, and we are, we are to welcome the, the stranger and the foreigner. Right. Um, but, but we do a lot, um, uh, of the opposite. So. So what would you say if you're going to, if you're going to pick a couple of passages that, um, would be texts that maybe should be preached more than they are. What are a couple of your go-to, you think, most helpful passages that would help people that are listening, if they haven't thought deeply about this, that be more biblically informed about um, immigration and how to treat persons that are from, um, you know, that, that aren't local to the context that you're living? Yeah. Um... Well, you know, I think that we actually preach on those passages. We just don't focus on the immigration aspect of them. So, you know, the story of Ruth, the story of Abraham, like there, there's tons of stories, uh, Daniel, uh, who's exiled, right? There's tons of stories in the Old Testament that talk about immigrants. I mean, really, um, or refugees, even Jesus, right? Like his his family was, was refugees in the land that they were in. And so um, we just don't focus on that aspect. And I, I'm not really sure why. We don't. I mean, obviously, the more we talk, the more we have these conversations, the more we can see that aspect. And that's a beautiful thing about scripture is that we see different aspects of it um, as we as we mature and as we grow and as we diversify our, our um, the people who are influencing us. Um, but I do think that there's a lot to be said uh, about immigration and um, it's already there. Right. We're already talking about it. So let's just, you know, take the step further and see exactly where it is um, that we can really pour into that and see what it's saying, you know, to our present day about um, how we're viewing immigration. So I was just reading about um, about Esther and and her story and had never really thought about the aspect of her being in exile where she was and and what that culturally required of her to become Persian, right? Mm -hmm. to, to make other people see her as Persian, uh, the assimilation that comes from that, the, um, the injustice that comes from assimilation, um, you know, that's required of her to make it to a place of importance um, in the culture that she was in. So all of those things are there. We just, we got to pay more attention. No, I think that, I think that's, 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 that's really helpful. And it's such a great word. I know one of the hardest things 
when I teach, I'm, I, I teach ex, the book of Exodus quite a bit. That mm-hmm. was what my dissertation was on. And, and I think one of the hardest pieces is, um, and it's that I find <clears throat> when students get confronted, obviously, you know, everybody gets hung up on Pharaoh's hard heart and, and such. Um, but, but I think the, the, the deeper issue there is um, even the process, the violence in a book like that is, especially mm-hmm. for if you've grown up in the United States, um, it's to realize that the United States would be Egypt, essentially, and yes. you have to read it, flip it, completely flip it, or you end up yes. using power inappropriately as a Christian. Right. Um, and I think, but that's, that's, once you kind of see it, you can see it, but most of us, it's almost like a fish in a water. We're not realizing mm-hmm. we're in that water of empire. And, um, and, yes. and that to me, that's the, and as soon as you see that all the stories, like you just, uh, I was expecting you to say a couple changed. of texts, but it just changes the way you read the whole scriptures. Even mm-hmm. Paul talking about being citizens of heaven and being a yep. citizen, he's subverting that whole idea of Roman citizenship, like in Philippians, for example. And so that's uh, really good. So thanks for that reminder. Uh, uh, Gina, yeah, that's so good, Brian. Thanks for sharing that. So good. Well, you're, well, you're welcome. I was, <laughs> you're, yeah, so I appreciate that. So talk a little bit about, um, you said, I think a couple of things, you said you love language. And uh, you've also used the phrase active listening a couple of times. And so, you know, without listing out words that we shouldn't say, because I don't really want to give even say <laughs> words that would be hurtful. How, how does a, let's, let's, how does a good intentioned kind Christian person who's just um, unaware, how do you, you know, we're going to do what's called microaggressions. And I don't always think people mm-hmm. do those things on purpose. So let's just mm-hmm. assume I'm a, you know, a reasonably decent, kind person, and I want to love my neighbor, but I just, I don't know the words to use or not to use. So how do you help people yeah. who maybe have stepped you know, acts, you know, again, let's, well, yeah, accidentally, because it's a person who wouldn't want to, if they how do you help people to avoid the wrong language when you're talking to somebody who's different from yourself or assumptions. Like we even, you know, we mentioned, I was mentioning my stepdaughter when she was in North Carolina, everybody thought she was Mexican automatically just because she's uh, she's Latin. So it had to be mm-hmm. a Mexican. So how, how do we avoid those kind of like microaggressions? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, I think whenever you're, you're wondering, you know, should I say this? Should I not <laughs> err on the side of not? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> um, and then, and then on top of that, kind of, again, just kind of going back to relationships. Do you know someone well enough um, to, to ask that question and to yeah. say, Hey, should I call you African-American or should I call you black? What, yeah. what do you prefer? Um, because, you know, some people prefer Latinx, some people prefer Latina. So, right. So we, you, you ask those questions and you figure out what people prefer and, and don't assume that everyone has the same preference. I think that's one of the big things is, um, you know, you and I, Brian, we're both white, we're both American, but we have a lot of different preferences and to assume that we have the same preferences is, is dehumanizing. Right. Um, and so I think that's another thing, um, I think, uh, you know, I've been thinking about Job's friends quite a bit lately and, and how, um, you know, they're so fascinating to me. And I, I feel like, I feel like I could totally be one of them, um, in the story, um, and how they do this very large, um, it, it, it almost is performance of, of fasting, for a long time prior to actually even having a conversation with Job about stuff, they're fasting and they are sad. They're lamenting about what's happened. Um, and yet they turn around and have this conversation with him um, that that is completely off, right? That their perspective of who God is, is not what 
who Job is realizing God is through this process. Um, and I think that oftentimes, um, you know, our, our listening quote unquote, uh, is more like that performance listening rather than really empathizing with what the person is going through and understanding, you know, where they're coming from and what they're, what they're doing or what's, what's motivating their current actions. Um, and so I think, you know, I think obviously the Bible gives us all kinds of examples of what to do and what not to do. But, um, but I do think that, uh, that, that we have to watch that our listening is not performance and that, um, we actually truly are trying to empathize, trying to understand and to a certain degree, I will never know what my black brother is going through right now. Um, because I'm never going to be in that position. And like you were talking about with power, right? Like I have always had more power in my whiteness. Um, so I have to listen as much as I can and empathize as much as I can. And, you know, when you have a certain relationship with a person, you can say the wrong thing and, and say, I'm so sorry. I said the wrong thing. Right. I mean, I think we can apologize anytime, but to have those relationships where you can learn and grow and say, I, I should have said this here. And I said this instead, and I'm really sorry. Um, you know, sometimes we don't see that sometimes it's a brother or sister who has to remind us, Hey, this is not okay to say it's okay in your white culture to say it. it's not okay in our culture to say it. So, um, I think all of those things are just really important as we, as we grow, but also to just to not be afraid to make mistakes. Right. I mean, we, it's okay. It's okay to make mistakes and we're not going to use the right language every single time. Uh, and unfortunately I think the pendulum swing is, you know, say everything perfectly, um, but, but that's not human either, right? That's dehumanizing too, because we are all humans and we all do make mistakes. So if we have, you know, the right people around us who give us the grace when we make mistakes and tell us in truth that we're making a mistake, um, then we can become better people. Yeah. Thanks for that reminder too, especially at the end. Cause sometimes it, like you said, it's either like we almost set up a standard and this is a, a would be a false standard too, is that we have to be perfect and some folks balk against that and then don't even try. And then you just, right. uh, it's, it's on a sense, the riskiest thing is just to be willing to be a human, show up with the best of intentions, yeah. try to be like, I always like, I like to use the, use the phrase ambassador of God's abundance. Cause that's, that's what mm. I want to be in my life. But, yeah. but obviously yeah. I fail at that. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> right. And so, but it doesn't sure. mean I'm not going to keep trying to show up right. and, you know, and also love, I'm going to think more what you just said too, after we're done, but Job was friends because they're, they're easy to, to, to dump on, but some of, you just reminded me that these guys, they were trying, <laughs> they actually, they, they don't they say trying. anything for what, like a week or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> Yeah. So they, so they it's sort amazing. of do spiritual practices and that's then right. still goof it up anyway. And which is yeah. um, kind of an interest. That's, that's so thank you yeah. for that. that. was a good insight. Um, yeah. well, well, let me shift the conversation towards, um, I guess it was your earliest uh, book, a smoldering wick igniting missions work with sustainable practices, um, that uh, you, you, and so, you know, as a person, you've been back in this, you and your husband have been back in the States for a, for a season now. And, and obviously, and when you were there, you, you would, I guess, received persons on short-term mission trips. Uh, so, so what did you learn? Like, what are key insights, key mistakes, and also positives of groups that do do these cross-cultural, really short-term experiences? Um, sometimes we think, you know, I'm, hey, I'm going to go save those poor souls in some other country. Right. But that, you know, that doesn't, in most people, that, that doesn't really happen. So like, what, right. what, what, what did you learn about that process? And what advice do you have for churches that, you know, le legitimately want to help other persons in other countries? 
Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, so I, um, yeah, <laughs> this, is a, this is a loaded question. Um, it's your whole book, right? <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, I, you know, for a while there, I kind of had thought that I was just going to be like, no, don't ever send a short-term missions trip again. Um, and I, I, I need to confess that there are days when I think that, you know, when I hear the bad stories, right. Yeah. Um, however, I, I had a wonderful example of, uh, a really great team that did that active listening, um, paid attention to, to what they were doing, um, did not try to create their own schedule, but joined in the schedule that was already happening, um, on the ground, um, didn't try to control, you know, the project specifics, but really partnered, um, with a lot of it. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the, one of the, my favorite tools that I created in the book is called a typology of participation, um, which actually was, um, not created specifically for short-term missions, but for economics, uh, professor in Sussex, I think had created it for economics, but I kind of adapted it for short-term missions. And it's been really helpful for a lot of people, I think. Um, so if anybody wants to see it, they can email you and I'll be able to send it to you. But, um, but it really talks through like, what is your participation level here? Is this manipulative participation or is this actually participatory um, in what you're doing? Are you, um, you know, moving people into uh, being their own, you know, decision makers and, um, or are you just, again, performing, right? Is this performance participa participation? Um, because uh, a lot of short-term missions uh, turns into, you know, especially coming from the, the, the West, turns into a checkbox, right? A list of things that we've done and we've gone there and we've done this and now we're come back and now we're telling you everything that we've done. Um, but that's not, again, going back to justice, that's not what justice is. So um, when we're trying to build a life of right relationship between um, between the sending organization and the receiving organization, then it requires a lot more. Um, and those requirements uh, can be challenging. They can, um, you know, make us re-look re at everything. Um, but but those, those are, are really more what um, partnership is actually about. And I think a lot of people say that they're partnering, um, but that's not actually what's happening on the ground. So the book is an attempt to help people actually partner. So, yeah. And what would, what would be an example of one of the best partnerships that you actually personally witnessed? Yeah. Great question. So, um, one of the examples, like, let me just give this example of, um, you know, goofus and gallant, if anybody knows highlights from back in the day. Um, so, so the one team that calls and says, Hey, we want to, we want to, um, plan a missions trip with you guys. Uh, we've got 10 people who are coming down. They're all really good at, um, painting houses. So that's what we're going to do. So you just let us know who, you, whose house you want us to paint and we'll paint them. Right. So that's, that's an example of, um, you know, a group that that is under the guise of participation because this this other group is going to tell them, hey, these are the people who need houses painted. But the other the other missions trip that said that comes down the I think it was the leaders that came down first had a conversation with our local pastor and said, what is it that you're already working on? What mm -hmm. are you doing as a church? Uh, what projects do you have going? And what is your plan for those projects? How can we 
help you create, you know, more effort and more movement towards the projects that you already have on your plan that are already a part of your dream and the goals that God has given you in this, in this, um, church. And, and that, so they came down, had that conversation, came back to the States, got a group of people together, worked stuff out so that the scheduling was not a giant interruption to, you know, the, the Mexican church's regular schedule. So, Sometimes what, what would happen is that people would want to come for vacation Bible school in June, but school was still going through June in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for those who wanted to do VBS, well, everyone's still in, in school. So, you know, you're, you're literally taking teachers away from the classroom or, you know, interpreters away from the classroom to do what you want to get done so that you can check, check this off the list versus actually doing what helps and what makes sense for the culture and the community um, as they currently are and currently moving. So um, that particular church had come down probably five or six times um, in a row, just, just helping in that way. And, um, and it, it really was beautiful. And I remember um, our pastor, Pastor David saying, you know, if any other church had asked me, because at one point they had asked about financials, like what they were working on. And um, he said, if any other church had asked me, I would not show them this. They don't deserve to see this, but this church has invested in us and, and done, you know, the hard work. And so they really are coming alongside of us to work on this. Um, and I'll tell you in Northern Mexico, that's hard to find because there's a lot of, um, because it's so close to the border of the U.S., there's been a lot, a lot of damage done um, by U.S. churches saying that they'll do something or pretending to partner or not actually partnering. So it was a really big testament to the church uh, here in North Carolina that was doing that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that example. That seems actually attainable, what you just said, because sometimes you get the idea that while there's this huge problem, but just simply, like, I think it's what you've been saying the whole time, you actually got to listen, pay attention and make sure you're, <laughs> you're actually helping and not yeah. and, and not actually drawing off the resources of the folks that right. you think you're trying to help. So that thank you for that uh, really good example. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to be safe for the time. I really appreciate you coming on. So like uh, just a few last kind of questions. Uh, What's what's next for you? Where do you sense that God is leading you over these next few years? And maybe is there a book that maybe you're kind of afraid to write that you'd love to, but at the same time you'd actually like to, love to write? Yeah, so I'm I'm currently working on a book right now uh, about God's abundance, which is cool that you say that about um, what you had said earlier. Um, ambassadors for God's abundance. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. Um, yeah, so this book is. Um, I actually started writing it in the midst of the pandemic and which is kind of ironic and funny if you think about it. Um, Cause we're all, you know, as a globe, we're all like, you know, what's scarce, what's not, we're missing masks, we're missing, missing PPE. Like what, what all can we do? Um, but the, the concept of, of the God of abundance has been just really, really hitting me over and over again. And I think the biggest thing that I'm seeing um with that is that there's a huge difference between the framework, um, which again, we could kind of talk about empire mentality, the framework that says that there's prosperity and there's scarcity. um, And there's only those two things. And then the framework of God's abundance, that's a completely different, uh, completely different worldview and works off of different things. And what sometimes looks like prosperity or sometimes looks like scarcity can actually be a part of God's abundance. um, While you know, scarcity and prosperity. What I I say in the book is that they're really the two sides of the same coin because they say, you know, if you're prosperous, you have X. And so therefore you are this, right? Your identity is matched to what you have. Um, 
then again, with scarcity, your identity is matched to what you don't have. Um, and so it's always just those two things. And that's always what we're looking at. But when you have an abundance mentality, then you can see that, uh, that maybe what looks like, you know, five lows, let's just use that, um, can actually turn into something huge. Um, but it's how we perceive it, right? It's not necessarily, um, based on what's actually there, but our worldview of what is there and what could be. Um, and so, you know, when we lived in Mexico, we, when we came back to the States, uh, we had resumes that were pretty blank, uh, in comparison to other people at our age, um, in that, you know, four and a half, five year span. Um, we had not, we did not work on any kind of IRA. We didn't have any like savings for retirement, no savings really in general. Uh, in fact, we ended up living on, um, uh, on welfare for a while. And so, um, but I can look back at that time and see that it was God's abundance. Um, yeah, that, wow, that just hit me. Um, <laughs> just yeah. because there are these moments where I remember distinctly one time um, going to the grocery store again and using my WIC vouchers. And um, prior to going to the grocery store, I just thought, Lord, like, I know that you have a feast, like, you, you have a feast for us. Um, and then I went to the grocery store, got the stuff, um, brought it back. And I was like, just because it came from government hands doesn't mean it's not a feast. Right. So, um, yeah, that hit me, um, to just recognize that, that God's abundance can even be in the midst of our deepest scarcity, um, that he's always there, you know, no, that's good. And thanks for even sharing that. And just, uh, I'll, I will, I will honor that transparency with just a quick story. You might like to, I, I, I don't know if I've actually said this on the podcast, I've done this in sermons, but like, I remember when, <clears throat> um, when my divorce happened and it, and it was just, I mean, gosh, it, that was just so devastating to me. And, um, one of the things that helped me bounce back, geez, I, I mean, and it was cost so much money and stuff. And so I was like, just flat out broke. I, you know, I, mm. I was trying to take care of my kids and, and I was just terrified. And I just remember, I mean, I couldn't even, um, I was watching how much gas I put in my car. Um, and I remember mm. I'd gotten a check for something and I, and I'm like, I'm not even driving to the bank. Cause I'm not sure if I want to spend the gas to go to the bank. And so I'm riding my yeah. bike and I'd been working on a sermon on exactly what you had just talked about. I, I was writing a sermon on John six, where Jesus has his um, feeding of the, um, mm. whatever five, I forget if it's 5,000 John six or not, but it's that, it's that similar story. And in the John version of the feeding of the crowd is a little different from the other ones. Cause it has this great mm. verse that it says, um, everybody ate as much as they wanted. Yes. And that's an abundance passage. And, and, and again, I had this, I, so it was actually a mystical experience, but I needed it. I, God was mm. so good to me at the worst time. I, I had some of the most powerful encounters with the Lord mm. during that, but I was going to just riding my bike down this road. And I remember I actually had to stop my bike and I felt like, again, I don't know if really was God speaking or not, and it doesn't matter ultimately, but I, I just had this picture where God literally said, Brian, I'm a God of abundance. 
Mm. And there's enough for you. And don't ever forget mm. that. And, and mm. it was like, wow, okay. And here I am, wow. I'm riding my bike because I can't buy gas. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm yes. like, cool. And and, yes. and, and and so just, I just want to honor that space that mm. you just went into because it, it, and, that, and that's a transformational mindset. So I, I, I learned about abundance when I literally was in scarcity yes. at that point in my life. And it's yes. been, and that was such a, you know, that's one of the, again, you don't want to say being in a bad spot is a blessing, but that was one of the mm. blessings of being in a bad spot spot for me. And, yeah. and that's where I got that whole ambassador of abundance stuff that all came out of that. me in this time when I was at one of the, the most scared points of my life mm. and where I wasn't sure if I was going to mm. make it out the other side. And so just thank you for that yeah. moment you just shared with us, Gina. So mm. I just want to honor that thank space you. that you just said. So Thanks. having said that, um, how did how do you ground yourself then um, so that you can practice abundance? I mean, what what are your typical spiritual habits that help you to show up and be the woman that God created you to be? You know, most of the time, at least, if not all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is such a good question. Um, I would say that it, it's part of my weakness right now, just with so much transformation happening in our family and yeah. transitions. Um, so. I used to do this thing where I would do like a prayer walk every day. Um, and hopefully I'm going to be at a place, you know, in the next couple of weeks where I can get back into that. Um, and just, I don't know if you've heard of the the app pray as you go, but it's, yeah, um, yeah. yeah but it's been a really good kind of spiritual practice for me to be on that. I am, um, I'm a five on the Enneagram. So I sometimes will walk with my rosary. Um, I'm not Catholic, but my family is. And so I have a, a rosary from a from a family member of mine that handed down. Um, so I'll, I'll walk with that and, you know, just kind of move mm -hmm. my hands around the beads so that I can actually stay focused on the praying. Um, and then I would say that, uh, another thing is just, um, you know, anytime we're talking about measuring, right. Anytime we talk about success or measurements of success, um, I feel like I'm always just like, okay, but what does that actually mean? Like, how do we actually define that right now? How is it being defined to me, whether this is work-related or not? Um, how is that being defined? And am I actually trying to live up to that goal or do I have a different goal? Um, because I think so often it's our definitions of success that play such a key role in keeping us in that prosperity, scarcity mindset. Um, is success, you know, climbing up the corporate ladder or is success being a whole human being right now? Um, is success, you know, going to therapy? Is success, you know, taking a walk right now and walking away from a difficult situation that, you know, I might say something that I shouldn't say. So um, trying to re-gauge uh, on a regular basis what success looks like and, and you know, with a big, big picture, a little picture. Um, and then I would say also just in the mornings, I try really hard to, to take some time to read, um, if I can, it doesn't always happen, but again, with school starting and hopefully everyone's going back in person, dear God, please, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then, then we can get back into some of that stuff. So, yeah. No, yeah, thank you. And I love I love that question that you even framed out about how to get de definitions for success. And so I think it's such a great, uh, a great question to ask ourselves. And how do we really live that out? And that's, um, that's such a powerful question. Mm -hmm. when We learn how to ask that. So thank you for that. Yeah. And thanks for the reminder. I mean, yeah, the rosary, a lot of people think that's Catholic, but that those those are just little those are such help helpful tools. And I, I think, yeah, 
And I'm wondering, you know, it's like, I think you're the second person who's mentioned a rosary to me recently. So I have oh, to think about, yeah, no, well, if it happens one more time, I know I'm supposed to get one, I guess, yeah. but, <laughs> but that, that was, that's really cool. So thanks for sharing that too. Cause I think that it's just so helpful. I always like to ask people that because you hear, cause we could, we, we cookie cutter spiritual formation too often. Yeah. And, and it's so important for people to hear different examples of what works. Not that we want to mimic everything that, you know, right. that Eugene are doing, but maybe that, Hey, maybe right. I should try that if I'm stuck and maybe I'd find something that helps. So thank you for that. Right. Yeah. And now the impossible question for a person who's as well-educated and well-read as you are, which is besides the scriptures, what would you say were <laughs> are two or three books that have really helped to shape you spiritually? Yeah. Oh, this is such a great question. There's so many. Um, yeah, I'm trying to try to narrow it down to a couple. Um, I think Prophetic Lament uh, by Sung Chan Ra is probably one of one of the um, yeah most defining for me, especially in writing um, my my book Separated by the Border, because I actually personally went through a lot of lament uh, during that season and didn't really know <laughs> what to do with it. Um, you know, a lot of times we're not discipled into what it means to lament and how to lament well. Um, so that has really been um, specifically helpful for me. And then um, I think anything by Brueggemann, I'm, I'm a big Brueggemann fan, but uh, Journey to the Common Good was probably one of my most favorites. And that kind of, you know, going along the lines of justice, kind of moving towards shalom. Um, what is what is shalom, but a justice-filled community, right? And so um, that the journey to the common good is just a really beautiful picture to me of reframing um, a lot. And um, yeah, I think those two specifically, I mean, there's there's a bazillion others, but yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at those two for now. Oh, thank you for um, for those uh, those two those two suggestions. I actually haven't read either of those, so I'll have to, I'm gonna oh, have to awesome. add those to my list. So that's I appreciate the new uh, the new books. Um, yeah. And then just last question: um, If people want to find out more from you, where would be the best place to connect with your work? I'll put all the links to your books and stuff um, up on yeah. the notes. But what would be a great place for folks to reach out and find out a little bit more about your work, Gina? Yeah. So my website is probably the best. It's Gina, G-E-N-A, Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S.com. Um, and then I'm, I'm on some of the socials, not all the socials, but uh, Twitter is my favorite. So um, it's Gina, G-E-N-A-L-R, um, uh, Thomas. So yeah, hopefully we can connect with people there. All right. Well, th well, thank you, Gina, for being on the show. And I really appreciate and just want to honor you showing up and asking your questions and, you know, being as transparent you were and, and really helpful to, uh, to the audience. So thank you for being the, uh, the person that God created you and called you to be. Thanks so much, Brian. It means a lot. And everybody who's listened all the way to the end, so grateful to have you along. And until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be voices of hope in the world. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. If you found this episode helpful, would you share it with your friends or with your social media network? And I would be truly grateful if you would leave a review wherever you found this, and that will help other people to find interviews like this. If you're interested in any of the resources that were mentioned, they're all in the show notes. And I would also encourage you, if you're interested, to check out my latest book, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence Can Change Your Life. It's now available via Paraclete Press. You can check it out on Amazon. That's also in the show notes. If you would be interested in learning a little more about Centering Prayer, you can sign up for my 
email uh, and I'll send you a newsletter. I'm not a spammer. Send something out every once in a while about Centering Prayer that might help you to develop a deeper practice. You can go to centeringprayerbook.com and sign up for those updates. If you have any comments or questions about the show or suggestions for guests, email me directly, deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next week on the next episode.